chapter 23. And it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said to them, I am old and stricken in age. And ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God, it is he that has fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God shall expel them from before you and drive them from you out of your sight. And ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside therefrom to the right or to the left, that ye come not among these nations, that ye remain these that remain among you, neither make mention of their name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them nor bow down yourself to them, but cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. For the Lord had driven out from before you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God, it is he it is that fighteth for you, as he hath promised you. Take good heed therefore unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Else, if you do in any way wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you know for certainty that the Lord your God will in no wise drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps unto you, scores on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one good thing hath failed to all good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing therefore faileth. Therefore it shall come to pass that as, as all good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he hath destroyed you from off this good land, which the Lord your God hath given you. When ye have trespassed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods, and bowed down yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land, which he has given unto you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you. We ask you that you would help me bring your word, Lord. Father, your word is quick and powerful, and I'm a weak vessel, Lord. We pray that you would speak to us through that word, that you convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, and we would see your uh, mighty deeds in history and in time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are coming now 
to the, la or to the second one of the three addresses that Joshua is giving to his people. And last time we looked at a brief address he came, he gave to those tribes that stay eastern side of Jordan. Verse 1 starts with, And it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua waxed old and he was stricken in age. Most of us think that this is now about 20 years since they arrived at Gilgal, all the way back in chapter 1. So it's been about 15 years, 14 years since that section we read about the division of the land, chapters 13 to 22. And it is said that the Lord had given them rest from all their enemies round about. They had entered into that rest. And how gracious the Lord was to Israel, because we know that all the work was not quite done. Yes, the nation was largely theirs. There was no warfare going on. Most of the pagans were defeated but some of them were defeated in spectacular ways, as, uh, as we, we kind of read in, or sung in our song, you know, the mysterious plans of God and his mighty power is shown. Um, and others were done with good old-fashioned warfare, daily fighting. They would pick up the battle every day in obedience to God and trust in his word, as most likely with our own lives. You know, we see growth in our own life. Sometimes it's slow, but we do need to have a sense of stick-to-itiveness where we daily pick up our cross, where we daily die to self, where we trust in God's word, even though we, we see things darkly. And that should mark our life. And Moses had already told them that this process would be long. It would not be a thing that would happen in a couple months, but that the enemies would be out, driven out little by little. So is our spiritual growth as well. Yes, at our conversion, we have a, a big change. All things are new. It is obvious that something has happened to us, but yet then the battle starts, isn't it? We fight flesh. We subdue our earthly and fleshly desires and that war against our soul. And some die slowly, and at times we might be discouraged, yet even little battles won is a sign of life, and we can thank the Lord for it. Sometimes we would cry with the Apostle Paul who says, deliver me from this body of death. And yet he goes on in the next chapter to point people to that glorious gospel that we have a complete forgiveness in, that we have entered into that rest of our believers, and we are eternally safe, even though many battles will remain. <clears throat> in this chapter, you could say it's sort of Joshua's last will and testament. He gathers up the elders, the, the judges, the heads and the officers of Israel, and once more he gives them a, a pastoral, warm um, address. He motivates them and he admonishes them as well. Once again, this old saint presses on his people to serve the Lord, to what's for backsliding, to apostasy and lukewarmness. And in this chapter, he uses <clears throat> the grace of God, his character, his love, his fear, his faithfulness in the past and in the present and in the future. And also the judgment of God, as the law of Moses does. So he applies the, the full counsel of God 
in these last addresses that he does. He does not, as often happens in our day and age, uh, particularly when you go to a funeral where you hear maybe just one side of God's character or his attributes, his love or his, his mercy, his kindness perhaps, but not the other side, or differently put, not a full picture of the character of God. His hatred for sin, his wrath to come, judgment for those that are outside Christ. Now, Joshua is now well advanced in age. God had kept him from all danger, and he's about to finish the race in a really God-glorifying way. In verse 14, he says, I'm going the way of all the earth. He was mortal too. Joshua, as great as he was, would die as others did. There was no exception for him. It is appointed unto man once to die. He knows that his appointed day with death is near. And after a long and busy and faithful life, he is to enter in even a better rest, an eternal one, of which Abraham already spoke about. And it's not strange to him. We see him, he's calm, he doesn't complain. He is full of love and zeal for God, and he looks back with gratitude and praise. So he is going to die well. And this will be his second speech to the nation of Israel. And just like other last words of saints in the Bible, we have them from Jacob. We went through them one year. And there's Moses and there's David. Uh, we get to see what is really important. They're not going to waste time in frivolous things. Even in secular history, people are always interested in what, what were her, his or her last words. Whatever those are, you can see what makes that person tick. And you could say that in this chapter, it's all about possessing the land and keep on possessing it. Namely, clinging on to God by loving him, obeying him, and believing him fighting the flesh and the allurements of the world. In verse 3, <clears throat> he calls to remembrance that all that the Lord God had done. The Lord Jehovah, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, the great I am, the unchangeable one. What he had done in history for Israel, the self-existing one, the everlasting I am, as he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. The one that is true and that is constant to all his promises. Always to believe and trusted in. It is this God that works for you, he reminds them. It is he that has fought for you. It is he that has rescued you and he that fights for you still. That judgment on the ungodly, which they saw, was also a reminder to them of the seriousness of sin and ought to be a, a, an influence on them. Yes, <clears throat> he says, you obey the call to fight. He compliments them. But you did not come here, each tribe now in their own land, on your own strength. You notice that whenever they set up these memorial stones, there was about eight along the way, and they did that many times, it was always in thankfulness to God the great I am for what he had done. It was never to a general. It was never to, obviously never to Joshua himself or to some other hero. It all went to God. The glory of all those victories went to him. <clears throat> that grace of God which they could now see, it was real, it was 
around them. They were standing on land. It was a gracious land. They had houses, which they did not build. They had vineyards, which they did not make. It was all given to them. It was the grace of God. Moses writes about God's glorious power. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. In the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sendest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. O who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Joshua here is, as it were, he's passing the flame. He's passing the, the baton over to the next generation. And he wants to make sure that they have a great foundation, that they know the greatness of their God. He says, remember, dear people, what the Lord has done for us. Never forget his power and his mercy. Never forget where you came from. You were stuck in Egypt. You were under horrible taskmasters, a picture of sin. <clears throat> and what God has done, he will continue to do so. Situations may change, but this God is the same. And of course, Joshua knows their weakness and how prone we and they were to forget. Even in the very midst of the display of power and might, they would doubt or they would complain. How are we not like that as well? Past mercies are forgotten things that we may be prayed for. We forget. We pretend that they haven't happened. We get worried again about this or that. Or we take matters into our own hands, not guided by his word. Quite often we make decisions as though God is not there. As though God has no ownership on our lives. As though God did not redeem us from our bondage by the blood of his dear son. Verses 4 and 5, after he had laid the foundation of God, what God has done in the past, he tells them what God will expel those nations that remain, as he has done before. He does not say how, but they must, the context is that they must fight. He goes to the law of Moses where it is said they must expel these nations. Um, but he has laid a sure foundation of confidence, and that ought to be a great motivator for them and for us. His promises are sure. Just look at what Jehovah has done so far. His action and word prove his faithfulness. This faith Israel could build on, and we. Confidence and assurance, assurance spring from remembering God's faithful words and deeds in the past. Psalm 135, 8. Who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders in the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings. If the Lord acted so in the past, Joshua says, it is enough, it is enough to trust him, a steady rock, whatever comes your way. With all that in mind, <clears throat> going into verse 4, then he says, be very courageous to do all that is written on the law of Moses. Don't veer from God's word. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. 
of this course, and God will be with you. Yes, God fights for you. Nevertheless, there are duties to perform, many duties. And we see that reoccurring theme here in this book. True faith in God spurs on love and good works, obedience. And there is a balance between trust and obedience all throughout this book. He reminds them again of the word of God, the standard which they are to align themselves with. You recall that in the beginning of his ministry, he himself was encouraged and told by the Lord these things. Joshua 1, from 5 to 9, and I will summarize it. It says, be of good, be strong and be of good courage. Observe all that is in the law. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Observe all these things according as it is written. And it will make your way prosperous. And thou shalt have good success. This word was not just for Joshua as a leader, but for the whole nation. And is the rule and encouragement for every believer today. In verse 7, he warns them and is concerned of some of these nations that are still among them. It is a great threat to Israel. Left alone, it will be a snare to them. We've seen that in the, some of these chapters where the land division took place. said, oh, they did not quite get rid of Canaanite here or Moabite there. And um, some sometimes said they could not. They didn't have faith. So he was, Joshua was naturally very concerned that they might be interested in their gods, perhaps in their idols, their practices, and all that it had to offer to the eyes and to the flesh and to the mind. The idols would be more accessible and they'd be found in some of these towns quite easily, less strict than the God of Israel. And unfortunately for Israel, we know how that worked out. This is exactly what happened in the very next book in the subsequent generation. And their downfall was very serious. O Israel, Joshua says, be careful who you serve, who you worship, and who you direct your love to. Take heed to the word of God, that that ye may not sin in word or in deed. Verse 7, he says, don't even come among them. Don't mingle or mix with them. Don't join them. Don't think you are strong enough that you will not be ensnared by them. Don't make treaties with them. They should have gotten rid of in the first place, let alone coming among them, making treaties with them. Then he says, and you see this progression of how this and other sins in our lives happen. He said, don't even mention their names of their God. Don't give them any credit. Don't mention their names as though there is something to it. Some allurement, perhaps some attraction. Like all sin, it starts out Slowly and gradually. Don't go back to Egypt, to bondage. Don't desire what the Lord has forbidden. Thirdly, he says, don't swear by them. Perhaps in a, in a business deal or some, something superstition or otherwise. Stay away from that. He says, it is dangerous ground. And finally, at the end of that verse, he says, don't serve them and bow down to them. Nick read that this morning, Exodus 20, 
the serving of other gods, the bowing down. It started with kind of being interested in them, being mingled with them. And Joshua warns them of the law of Moses. <clears throat> and you notice in the verse, it started out simply with a bit of mixing. They went among them. And it ends with, don't bow down to them. How often it starts small and innocent, perhaps. But in the end, you'll be bowing down to them. It would come with a price in full-blown idolatry. There's only two ways to live, Joshua says to them and to us. Serve the Lord fully and completely. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians tells us too to flee from idolatry. It's not just something that is in the Old Testament. It was constantly reminded in the New Testament too. It's a call for separation as we see commanded throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation for the people to separate themselves from the world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians for six or uh, chapter 6, 14 to 18, he, he deals at length with that. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He says, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What agreement has Christ with Belial? Belial, the personification of wickedness and, and worthlessness. Or what part hath he with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Wherefore, come out from among them and be a separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. See, the temptation is dealt with many times in the New Testament. We're all prone to it. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then in verse 8 he says, But cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. He compliments them, probably so that they would listen carefully. It's always good to say something good, and they would listen carefully what else he had to say. <clears throat> he compliments them how they walked so far. Cleaving, meaning a heartfelt love, affection for him, both externally, they would keep the law, they would keep all that was required of him, but also internally. <clears throat> they would love him and trust him. They would hope in him in their hearts. Expectation that everything that they have or need would come from him. You know, sometimes when I pick up Georgie, she holds me tight and she won't let me go. She wants to be as close to her dad or her mom as she can. And even when I try to put her down, she, you have to pry her off yourself. And you probably know that feeling. <coughs> so the Lord wants us to cleave to him. He wants no rivals. Cleave to the Lord like a lamb gathered into the arms of a good shepherd, of the good shepherd, surrendered completely to him. Cleave, same word used for marriage in Genesis 2.24. And then in, in verses 9 to 10, he reminds them what God has done, that nothing is impossible for them. Humanly speaking, those nations were much larger. They were great in numbers, and, and we looked at that, and, and, and warfare and equipment. 
but none could stand against you. One man standing in faith against these doomed nation would cause a thousand of them to flee. Be bold, he reminds him. For us too, to be bold, to remember that the Lord is with us and we stand up for truth. <clears throat> he is saying by this, don't give this, don't attribute this to your own strength or tactics as we are prone to do, but to the power and might of God and for his gracious assistance. In these verses, he persuades them and points to them the grace of God so that they never forget the Lord is with them. Why would they go back? Kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, after he has explained that glorious gospel of Christ, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's a great verse. I love that verse. God's giving of his son is proof that he will give us all things that we need. It's an argument from the greater to the less. He that, he that has given the greater gift withhold, will not withhold the less of what we need. God gave the highest proof of love that a father could give, the highest confirmation of his willingness to do good for those he gave to. After going over what the Lord has done in verse 11, he said, take heed, therefore, that you love, that you love the Lord your God. Cultivate a strong love for him so that the temptations will not cause you to fall. The Lord Jesus, when asked what was the greatest commandment in the law, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Proverbs 4 talks about keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow are the issues of life. Lot's wife was an example of a divided love, and judgment came upon her. It's a dangerous place to be. A heart that loves God will avoid sin, avoid anything that grieves our Savior who bought us with his precious blood. The dangers now for the people of Israel are more than ever before, more than there was in the wilderness. When they're all together, it was a family event, as it were. Pretty soon, Joshua will be gone. He will die and, and move on. <clears throat> but now they are dwelling among these pagan nations. They will see their examples. They will see their way of life. There will be temptations that come with them. Their idols, their elaborate worship perhaps. And Joshua is very pastoral. He is concerned how that rest they have now entered will be used. And how it will be how the lasting fruit will be for these people. How will they fare? How will they sustain themselves? <clears throat> and this is a warning for us too, isn't it? Even coming to Christ, we're still in a world with various evil and temptation. The conquest was a good start, but now they must keep the land. A good start to a race is great, but the key is how we finish it, isn't it? How we walk with all the blessings that the Lord has given us. 
Now, one thing, verse 12, that he's a real concern for him, and it's mentioned quite a few times throughout the Decalogue, is that the Israelites would be marrying the ladies from these nations, or, or men from these nations. The girls of the Canaanites were probably attractive. They did not have rules too much with laws concerning marriage, as the God of Israel was. Marrying, perhaps, would open up trading possibilities, cultural experiences, as we would put it today. Perhaps they could dialogue with them, they would tell themselves, see what they had in common in their belief systems. Human reasoning and excuses and exemptions are often the basis for our falling into sin instead of following the law of God. It was a dangerous ground. And his warnings remained, was in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, only to marry in the Lord. It was clear then as it is now. And young people, if you're unmarried here, perhaps you're eager to get married. Maybe you're getting a bit impatient or worried. Decide beforehand and during this time that you'll never entertain starting that type of relationship with an unbeliever. Rather, trust the Lord. Pray, obey your sovereign God, and trust that he will provide. Yes, if you're a single young man, the Bible says to seek, seek a wife, but also in the process to wait on the Lord patiently. And in the meantime, to be useful as a Christian, one that serves, one that observes the needs of others, as you may have some more time in your hands as others. And you could see the harm now. We know now that they're going to fall away in generations to come. That the harm this generation has set up the next generation with. By not fully obeying the Lord. Nor destroying these nations completely. Now this generation comes out good. And they even get complimented in this chapter and the next. Yet by not fully obeying. They set the next generation up for temptation and failure. How careful we need to be. How watchful do we need to be in our church, in our family, in our personal life. Things might start slowly. A certain habit creeps in. It may not look that bad at first. But what are the results from years from now or generations that follow? Think of the great Christian institutions and denominations that have fallen and have become totally apostate, enemies of the gospel. Everything that is sacred, they have profaned. It's, it's unbelievable. Where God is waxed, where God is, is, is like a wax figure shaped into their own image or whatever culture or the world around them dictates. <clears throat> Galatians, it's not new. Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, he almost opens up with it in the first verse. He said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that calls you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Pray that it would not be so with your family, with you and me, with this church, other churches, and for our children's children. This warning was given by Joshua overall to a very faithful generation, a nation. 
Let us heed the warning ourselves and consider our proneness to fall, to backslide, or to take unworldly thinking and practices. <clears throat> Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, writes about the Old Testament examples and said, These were written for your admonition. Wherefore, let him that thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So from verse 12 onwards, we see Joshua going further into a warning mode. He started out positive, reflecting what God has done and how they have obeyed. But he now focuses on what will happen. And the same word is used, cleave, if they cleave to these remnant nations. When they marry them or associate with them or adopt some of their practices, worship them, their gods, what will happen to them then? They will become what they cleave to, isn't it? What they find appealing in their eyes, they will become. James says, do not be a friend of the world. It means we're an enemy of God. In verse 13, he says, know for a certainty, a certain, that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations before you but they shall be snares and traps unto you. Thorns in your sight, scourges in your sight, thorns in your eyes, rather, until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. You see that term often repeated here, the Lord your God. He's strong emphasis, who gave it and who it is they serve. Joshua now appeals for their obedience and for your loyalty by the fear of God his judgment, and lovingly warns them of what the result would be. <clears throat> he, look, he says, as certain as these promises were that led you so victorious into this land, so certain is the warning or promises when you disobey. No longer will the Lord your God drive out these nations from you. And not only that, they will become snares unto you, traps, whips on your sides and back, thorns in your eyes. You, you get the picture. Until you are removed from this land that he gave you. He'll drive these nations out. The land of milk and honey will once again be in these nations' hand. Who will you cling to, Israel, he asks. He warns and he paints a painful picture if they choose the other nation. And the same question is for us, isn't it? Who will we cling to? Even if we're believers, how easy it is to cling to other things as well. Joshua's speech is coming to an end, and he appeals to their heart and to their mind. And I will soon depart, he says in verse 15. As Moses has gone before me, so must I. <clears throat> It's like saying, look unto me one more time. Your aged leader, it will be the last time. Listen to me, incline yourself to the word of God that comes out of my mouth. He says in verse 14, And behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. You know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass, and not one 
thing hath failed thereof. Here again, he says those same words as he was told by the Lord, and in various times he has repeated. God is faithful. God is true. He prom- his, the promises beforehand given always come to pass. Not one word has fallen by the wayside. The Lord Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. One more time, he reminds them. Maybe you think he's repetitive. But one more time, he reminds them of the faithfulness of God. As an aged father, he encourages them and warns his people. Now, it would be nice, maybe, when, if this speech ended there. Kind of on a positive note, one commentator says, you know, you would, you would think he would have stopped there and then started to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. It's a moment of the finest devotional mood. But, as he spoke earlier, how these nations would treat them if they marry and become involved with them, yoked with them in various ways. Now he goes on to speak about the promise, the certainty, the inevitability, the sure thing of what God will do to them as a nation, as a people, if they did not obey but trespass the covenant of the Lord their God. He says, therefore it shall come to pass that, in verse 15, therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God had given you. What he is speaking here of, among other, is those sections in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the cursings. You can read them at home, Deuteronomy 15 to 68. It's a long list of the cursings that would come upon them if they disobeyed. It's long, it's very sobering. Like I said, please read it at home. And it's a reminder that indeed, as the writer of Hebrew puts it, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. I'll read just some verses near the end of that chapter. And it shall come to pass that as the Lord, sorry, and it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoice over you to do you good, to multiply you, So the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you, to bring you to naught, and ye shall be plucked off from the land wherever, from the land whither thou goest to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people, from one end of the earth even to the other, and thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. Ralph Davis writes about this section. He said, the faithfulness of the Lord is a two-edged sword. It comes both in grace and in judgment. His fidelity is not just displayed in his blessings, which we like to hear, but also in covenant judgment. The certainty of both is sure and steadfast as every word of God. Here we see that God is not a tame God, as often is sadly portrayed about, about Christia in Christianity today. But he's faithful to heal and to destroy. He will chastise his people and bring them back. Some of them are gone forever, apostatized. 
God is the promise keeper in his blessing, but equally so in his threats. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture too. Paul in Romans talks about beholding the goodness and the severity of God, to think about it, to, to use it as a warning of falling away. Joshua ends with a serious warning, an unhappy one, some calls it. But it would spare, he does it to spur on faithfulness in God, to give a firmer vision of who he is, a lesson for us to remain faithful to the end. Watch, says the Apostle Paul, lest Satan would take advantage over us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The warnings and the admonitions, admonitions and praises given here are very useful on this side of the cross as well. Yes, if we have trusted the Lord Jesus, we have likewise entered into that rest that he gives, the forgiveness, the adoption, sonship, eternal life. But he expects us now to cling to him, to abide in him. If you abide in me, he says, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, just as the early Israelites. <clears throat> The fact is that as a believer, you have a, if you have the Lord Jesus, you have proof of God's faithfulness and ability. So we are to keep trusting and to obey him, to repent daily. In the person of his son, he has shown us what that love looked like. Through his death on the cross, life has come to us. We'll be remembering that in the, in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord Jesus has conquered all our enemies, sin, death, and Satan. He fought the battle for us and brought us all the blessings of the new covenant, our promised land, and he'll bring us home into everlasting glory. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because in Christ we have ceased from our own works to justify ourselves or to make ourselves acceptable before God. <clears throat> Joshua encourages his people to live a life of obedience and fruitfulness and, de and deep trust in what God has said in the past and what he would do, what he did in the present and what he would do in the future. And how much more can we say yes and amen to that in the light of the Savior that came, died, and rose again? Let us examine ourselves this morning. Maybe we have left our first love. Maybe we're entangled in the world with some way. Are we truly serving the Lord from a heart of love that Joshua recommended to his people? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Joshua, for his life, Lord, as it's now almost coming to an end, Lord. We thank you for examples of faithfulness, Lord, of course, we know that all faithfulness comes from you, and we thank you for that, Lord. We think of the warnings that are given here in this chapter. Lord, we think of the world that we live in, the many, many allurements that come daily uh, on our path, Lord. Oh, help us to be strong, to be courageous. Father, to love you, to see that all these things that the world offers, sinful things, are, will lead us to snares, and they'll become traps to us. And Lord, maybe this morning someone here is backslidden. You said a good profession, but his love has grown cold. Father, would you return that person to yourself?
Father, we, are thank, we thank you that you eagerly wait for returning souls. Father, we thank you for the great shepherd of the sheep that gave his life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.